0: Hi there, my name is David Yun, and I've built this podcast for all of us photographers looking for some extra inspiration. Every Friday, I interview local photographers about the how and the why behind their projects, and at the end of each episode, I add a thought or a challenge for both of us to consider as we continue our pursuit of awesome photography. You can help me keep this project growing by sharing this podcast with your photo loving friends and by subscribing and leaving a review or a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Ultimately, the goal is to stir up conversation and thoughtfulness about photography as a practice. And I wanted to start each episode with a thank you. Your attention and focus on these artists and these conversations help the community at large keep growing. So, Without further ado, welcome to my viewfinder. Do you have a favorite person? That's always an odd question. Um...
1: I, I don't think I do. It's, it, there's, there's so many people associated with your life. And so, you know, my family, my wife and family, and uh, my, my broader family, uh, whether it's in, in Peru or it's in Britain, uh, and then it's friends as well and um, companions. So. There isn't a single person. I think if I was to give the name of a single person, other people might be offended. Um, but it's a privilege to, to have those connections uh, wherever they are. And you know, and that's one of the positives of the pandemic, actually, is you know, as you're talking about with Zoom, that I've linked up with school friends. I'm, I'm talking about high school friends in Britain that I've I've not been in contact since we left school, and I'm having conversations. We're using WhatsApp or we're using Zoom. And we're having really nice get-togethers, and and um, it's just good for the soul. And probably would not have done it without what's going on. Yes,
0: that I I totally agree with you. It is a fascinating uh, thing. One if one focuses on the uh, positive impact of the pandemic, there's a there's a social connection. I, I mean, as much as we'd like to meet each other, we may never have met each other if it wasn't for the pandemic. Right. You know, Exposure Studio likely would yeah. never have happened, and so you know there are complexities of existence. (laughs) My viewfinder is a proud member of the Alberta podcast network, locally grown community supported. The Alberta podcast network is a program to support Albertan podcasts by connecting us with local businesses and initiatives to keep our stories and our interests at the fore. If you're interested in finding more Albertan podcast content in a wide range of topics, Check out their website, albertapodcastnetwork.com, or you can connect with them over social media. They are at albertapodnet on both Instagram and Twitter. This sponsored message comes from Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. They offer internet, electricity, and natural gas at low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you're choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozawski. And we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. We close out our chat with some final insights from Ashley. His approach is not about taking pictures. It's about putting together stories and narratives that reflect his social principles, heritage, and community across cultures, across generations. Here's the conclusion of my chat with Ashley Nixon. As someone who takes such an active part in sort of the historical expressions of photography, uh, what I hear is you have an innate Training or intuition for the research part. So you're not getting trapped in taking a pretty picture of somebody in costume, but you flew to Peru to try to talk to people who had, uh, I don't know, invent is the wrong word, but who had taken a part and, and survived this uh, cultural aspect uh, instead of getting washed out in, you know, co- I don't know if colonization is the right word, in, in just the evolution of society. So I don't really study the background of uh, historical photographers, but in your experience, is that what's crucially different, uh, particularly in creating meaningful documentary work um, that we don't stop at just taking a pretty picture that we need to try to dig a little bit further um, to build a story that
1: is worth telling? it's um i I, I take photographs and I make films that are they're not, they're not, they're not to do with the technology. It's not about me being a photographer. I, 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 regard myself as a storyteller much more than a photographer. I'm not even sure if I like that term. Are you a photographer? I mean, I do use it. You know, we, we do say, yes, I'm a photographer, but I'm actually a visual storyteller where I'm using film and I'm using photography and I'm writing about it. Now, relatively few photographers actually write about their work. I actually take Immense pleasure out of that, and I—it's just part of my craft that I happen to be wired up in a certain way that I have to write about images, and it works for me, and and I I, I want to continue doing that, and when I approach a, a a project like the one I've described, the Wakanada, I am going at it as a scientist, or, or I, I've got a, you know, a discipline there of research. Got a phd it's not in sociology but it's in ecology but the work experience i've had after that has been very much on the social agenda and i've been fascinated for many many years about the integration and relationship between heritage that people follow and then apply to their current lifestyles and how does heritage have a bearing on the sustainable development of their communities. And with a dance like the Wakanada, they are performing that dance. They are recognizing their ancestors. They are showing that that way of living, that relationship with their landscape, their relationship with with their gods in the mountains, in the Andes of Peru, that it carries on now. And the value to them is that they are proud of that heritage. They, they are taught it in their schools. They are proud to present that to the world. And in part, as a consequence of that, people are attracted to their community. There is some ecotourism that can be associated with that. But there's that well-being that comes out of pride of where you are in a place on this planet. And that turns into how you go about your approach to life. And in fact, the backstory for that um, dance, the Wakanada, with these wooden masks, these, these masked men, they also have these whips and they're cracking these whips on the floor of the town square as they go around there over and over again with the same single piece of music. Some people think it's monotonous, but I never, ever got bored with that music. I love it. I still love that music. But they're cracking those whips because for the days that those people dance the Wakanada, they have an authority. They have an authority equivalent to being the mayor of the town. And what they are doing is they are asserting their authority for just a a small period of time and looking at the social structure of their community. And if they see things are going wrong, Parents are not looking after their kids properly, or they're not keeping their houses clean, or they're not sending their kids to school. They'll actually make a point. So you've got to do this right, and so the culture is turned into the contemporary lifestyle of being good to one another, uh, working as a community, showing respect. So these are things that you don't see in a photograph. All you see is the the lovely costume absolutely splendid costume and these people moving around and dancing but it's that backstory that fascinates me and indeed in terms of photography how do you actually capture that through a single image now of course the answer is I don't think you can in most cases you cannot do it with a single photograph so you have to create that narrative represented with with images and of course if you've got film that that makes it better because your film can also include conversations that you can't possibly capture in a in a photograph so having those conversations that relay this kind of backstory or explanations about who made those masks why did they make them in this particular way how do the people who make the masks make a living out of doing that and so on. That comes out of those conversations that you can relay back to your readers or or viewers by means of words or by moving pictures that go with the photographs actually I'm, i'm really really interested in that multimedia approach i'm not satisfied with photographs alone i want to put other things in there i want to put words with those photographs to explain the backstory because the backstory is in many ways more interesting than the front story that you see in the image. And obviously the moving images, but also with, in the case of this, the Wakanada, showing to people the dance. Now, here's an interesting sideline on this, David, which is that, um, as as I think you know, that um, Angela Baim and I put on an exhibition at Sea Space in Calgary in February as part of the Exposure Photography Festival. And uh, Angela put up some fantastic photographs of forests recovering after fire in Canada. And I put up photographs from my latest book, Social Camouflage, but also showed some photographs from the Wakanada. And we had this concept called fire and masks. And it seemed to be a good fit. It was a good fit. I was very happy about that uh, exhibition at Sea Space. But the, the plan was, Most definitely dented by COVID 19, you know, because the physical presence of people going to that exhibition was extremely limited, that we had to make, you know, considerable changes to the way we exhibited those photographs. But my plan initially, if COVID had not been there, was to have had most definitely a multimedia kind of experience, that the photographs on the wall were going to be accompanied by some short film segments being uh, projected onto a wall. There was going to be a soundtrack for there from the music of this dance. And I was also going to have, uh, at least a, uh, in certain times of the week, I was going to have dancers performing this fantastic dance, the Wakanada. And so that was the game plan. And, and I actually believe that photographic exhibitions alone, just photographs on walls are severely limited in what they can actually do to reach out and get that feeling into an audience.
0: I was reading something. It was dealing with the evolution of language, both uh, from images and iconography uh, to repelling images and iconography. And now we live coding language uh, through both. And so, hearing you focus or hearing you being interested in building narratives, but also feeling like you need to use language as opposed to static images, um, I wonder what your opinion is about how they coexist. So, in the thing that I read, there's a natural opposition because, at any level, telling a story, either in images or in language, written word, uh, between languages, there's going to be, yeah, coding bias, cultural impact. So, as someone who is writing uh, a written narrative about your subjects, building static images around how you experience it, and then in some cases, um, filming. I don't know if it's supplementary, perhaps like separate. So you have three, you have three dimensions essentially of approaching. Uh, an idea. Do you find that they have been working well together? Do they uh, come into conflict or overlap a lot? Glenbo had, uh, I think it was the Chanel exhibit, and they had a small room, uh, much to your uh, concept, where they showed a film interviewing, uh, well, had excerpts of interviews, I think, with Coco and with sort of designers and with sort of uh, fashion people around the era. So you get a sit-down visual experience, a multimedia experience of why some of these haute couture dresses are so important in art. Um, And I was uh, drawn into that. Uh, Just as much as I was drawn into looking at, I mean, my wife studied fashion, but, you know, imagining how you hand stitch these like one-of-a-kind embroidered buttons on this fucking gown. I don't know. I can't do that. But was it enough for me to see the dress or did I need the film to explain to me where Chanel comes from? I think it was Chanel, I could be wrong, but what is your opinion in your experience of whether they've been working well together? If, if let's say uh, quote unquote photographers ought to spend more time in the written word or vice versa, if written words ought not to rely on uh, visual imagery.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question, David. It's good to discuss that one. I think I'd begin by saying I'm actually ambivalent about this. and I've I've found that, that the, there are uh, some times and situations where I don't want to go anywhere near the words. Um, I like the idea of imaging being created uh, and shared. It has to be shared, of course. It's got to go beyond yourself, but it's shared with people, shared with an audience who then can't quite work it out. They're, they're troubled by it and, and it it forces them to explore the meaning of that image as it applies to their own life experiences. And so they make their own narrative based on the narrative that you've created as a photographer. And I actually really like doing that because some of the best photography is intriguing, isn't it? It's 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 mysterious, it's got different explanations and they're all good. So long as you've, you, you, you feel content with that yourself, you go away from the experience of seeing an image with a certain satisfaction, that you, it has resonated with you and your life. So keeping it simple, where you're not explaining everything away, I think is really powerful. And I do like doing that. But then there's another part of me, so, and I'm not schizophrenic, it's it's just different approaches to different uh, circumstances that i really do like examining that backstory so if we come back to the the Wakanada idea i could have done that project i could have traveled down to peru and filmed and photographed the dance completely and nothing else i could have had impressions of a performance an artistic performance and it would be good and many people would do that many people that that is their approach that's not good enough for me i want to examine what created that performance what is it about that heritage 500 years ago that led to these moments now and how do they keep it going and they keep it going in various ways making the local economy work that that they are making sustainability happen that the mask maker is creating those masks from, you know, chopping down local trees and then regrowing them, getting his tools out in his his busy uh, workshop, making those masks, selling them on to people who are going to perform the dance. And he's got a living out of that. But that living is connected to the living of people 500 years ago. Uh, And so my desire was to have imagery that was beyond simply the artistic performance and to reveal the context, the the heritage context, the sustainability context. Another example of of that in in terms of this integration of words and images comes out of the the latest book I've I've published called Social Camouflage. Social camouflage began in March of last year of 2020, effectively, that as we went to lockdown with COVID-19, In a a very short period of time, all of those changes were upon us individually, in our communities, in society at large, across the world. And we all went through um, certain things in common. Some of us tragically have lost members of of family or friends uh, because of this dreadful disease. Many of us have survived without that. But we've all been restricted, like you know, you're restricted to your bedroom to do this, you and I are on Zoom, we're not having a cup of tea in, in a cafe and having a chat to set this up and then having a, a real interview next to each other. We can't do all of that. And I began to to reflect on those changes, not only on a personal level within my own family, but but how that translated into these overall societal changes to do with this pandemic. And I started to put notes into my diary. I started with a series of words. And and over a, a few weeks, and in fact, it kept on going for months, I started this A to Z of words that I thought reflected the changes that were upon us. And then I started to imagine visual scenarios that represented that change, like education, or learning, or traveling, or eating, or. Whatever those words are, garons of verbs, I started to write them down. And then I visualized these concepts. And it came to a point where I I realized the way to execute this bringing together of words and images was to create studio portraits involving my daughter, Jennifer, in which she would be dressed up and playing out a very simple role, which is to do with traveling or, or performing. She used to play cello or playing hockey playing hockey was stopped you know the season just disappeared and that's just a small example of the change so i decided that i wanted to have these visual representations of these gerunds of verbs like playing and what we did as a family we collaborated as a family and that was a great thing that my wife and i went into fabric shops I've never done this myself, but um, we went into fabric shops and looked around for fabrics that were a good fit for these feelings and and changes like playing. And we found some really good fabrics and bought a lot of them, very big pieces of fabric. And then my wife used uh, her her sewing machine. She's got a lot of skills in, in working with fabrics. And we created all these photographic backdrops and set them up in part of my house, created a studio. And then we used the same fabric for these masks. And, uh, and so my, my daughter would pose in front of this backdrop with the same kind of mask. And so like the one about traveling, she's there, she's wearing, actually she's wearing my jacket, my sort of travel jacket, and she's got a backpack on and she's looking at a map and she's got a compass. And it's saying, look, we can't do this. And for the playing, can't play hockey. So I get some of these images of her with her hockey helmet on with this backdrop that seems to be a fit for hockey and she's looking a bit miserable because she can't play the sport that she's been playing since she was a you know three years old so created these visual representations around the words then what i did and i'm quite happy with what i i came up with in the end that i decided that in this situation i did not want to have lots and lots of text explaining what is going on. I wanted to avoid that. And yet I wanted to relate back to this initial idea in my notebook of this set of words. And so what I did was I went back through all these words and I said, well, how does that image fit against that word? And found, well, actually the image is relevant to a cluster of words. So I created these uh, word clouds and then I, I actually published them against some of these photographs and said, look, this next series of photographs and there's not chapters, but as this next series of photographs is to do with these words. So I took out captions, took out most of the explanation, just one page of saying this is what I was trying to achieve. And then let the reader or the the, the user of the photographs make their own mind up about what is actually going on there. And those studio photographs were then accompanied by other photographs that i was taking throughout the year of 2020 whether it was in calgary or probably the same with you david that that our holiday last year was well actually we went to Drumheller for three days that was our holiday you know but you stay close to home we just had a little escape when i went on that holiday when i went up to explore the elbow river and that kind of thing go out for hikes i was saying what imagery can i take that goes with these studio portraits so the the concept evolved in the course of 2020. And of course, it was a. It became actually very therapeutic, which is a, an important part of photography. Um, that's why many people do it and keep doing it. But it was it was a replacement for those big and, and audacious plans. I had to go back to Peru or go back to England. So I can't do that. So what can we do? This is a really important year, 2020. I need to make a record of it that is not just about my life, but perhaps other people will see and it will resonate with the changes that they have experienced as well.
0: I mean, you brought up the term user, which I think is interesting. I am uh, reading a book on typography. The uh, researcher in typography was talking about the advent of the internet, changing the way that people um, incorporate data. And then you're talking about putting on shows um, where I think what I interpret is Requiring or asking a user, or an audience to have active participation in the subject matter. So, uh, one of the problems with social media, in my opinion, is this scrolling and flicking. You don't need to be active. It, it's just, it just disappears. It's out of the consciousness. And so, to get attention, it's either all gotta look the same, ironically, uh, or it has to be like a flash in the pan, and then, you know, the reality is nobody gives a shit after. But this chasing of a conversation more so than a narrative is a fascinating thing is it something that we as artists can control you know and is that ultimately you know sort of the process behind writing a book uh, using words having artists create not epithets necessarily but some type of formal literature to either explain or to frame uh, the work are we are we required now to control what effect we want out
1: of a project? Um. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's about control. It's I, I think the word is share, actually. It's sharing. It's about sharing work. And it doesn't matter what kind of artist you are. If And, and not everybody wants to be called an artist when they're a photographer. I, I'm, I'm ambivalent about that as well. I have this artistic part of my life. I mean, when, when I was 17 at school, I almost became an architect. Or, or if I wasn't gonna get into architecture school, I was gonna be a graphic designer. I was absolutely driven by art. And, and I had this, I don't, I don't know why we get into this, but it's actually a good story. When I was 17, I was going to take um, uh, courses at school in art and, uh, and maths and physics. So I could be either an architect or, or I could get um, into graphics. And I hadn't done any physics and my maths wasn't really good, I, I always had to struggle through it. I mean, I got by, you know, i done all this scientific stuff as a consequence, but at that point, I got really scared of, of ending up going to art school uh, because I'd, I'd get a really good grade in my art because, you know, I, my drawing was good, my painting was good, and, and I loved it. I really did like graphics. Um, but I was scared about ending up just having a, a qualification in art and then drifting away, and it just, just didn't seem right to me. And so I just flipped. I went into the sciences. I, t- I took chemistry and biology and, and maths. But the, rem- the last two years of school, I was put under the wing of, um, uh, uh, and his name was Paul Clarkson, actually. I think he's passed on now, but Paul Clarkson was my, my uh, teacher in uh, Keithley in Yorkshire. And he taught me perspective drawing. And he, he allowed me to go into the art classes. So every week I, I would go into the art classes as if I was doing that, that course, but I wasn't. But I just sat in and did it. And so art, art is actually really important to me. And in fact, now I, I'm, I've moved out of working in, in business and, and you know, set up my own photography business and so on. I've returned to my artistic roots. So there is actually a part of me that I could say, yes, hand up, I, I am an artist. As a photographer, but this is another thing that we've been talking about. This I, I really am a documentary photographer, I, I, and, and indeed we should perhaps even s- strike out the word photography. I am a documentarian. I am a teller of stories. All right. So it's um, where are we go on This that that sort of the artistic connection. I've forgotten what we were actually going to be talking about there.
0: That's how you know the conversation's working, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me just do a quick aside while we catch up. Uh, what, what was it in your science degree that uh, your instructor or your mentor thought it'd be a good idea for you to do perspective drawings and go back to art? Was it related to some of the research you were intending to do at that time? Uh, it is fascinating to hear often that the preconceived notion of a university or higher learning is the single track thought. So if I'm gonna be an engineer, I need to only focus on engineering and everything else is uh, you know, garbage. But the more I speak to so-called learned people or people who actually dive into those fields, all of those fields are actually quite ambiguous. So uh, science and math are not memorizing numbers. There's a, there's a language, so to speak. So hearing that you are leaning towards science, you're going to—I don't know if this is declared yet—but you're going to end up in ecology. You had aspirations or interest in graphic design, architecture. Just quickly, anecdotally, what what happened that your your prof was like? You know what? I'm gonna get—I'm gonna allow you to sit in this class so that you can get this out of your system. I mean, did it functionally affect uh, the learning aspect when you were young? Um, it, it is interesting to to
1: hear that you. I mean that was you know that was 17 year old and it's still high school. But, oh, this is high school. Yeah, that was high school. But but you know it's it's worth reflecting on. I haven't really thought about this for I don't know when I last thought about it. But when I went into university and then did my degree, you know, like many many degrees, you also have to do things outside of your your set subjects. So my first degree was in applied biology, uh, but I had to do over the uh, the three years there. Um, I had to do these, uh, like, liberal arts subjects, right? And actually, they're, they're some of the most memorable classes that I did. I, you know, I did a class about dinosaurs. I did a, a class about epic literature, and we looked at the Tolkien novels. Uh, we did a class about, um, about opera and symphony and orchestra music. And then I did this double unit, which was nude drawings and nude art uh that we'd go into the studio there'd be a, a a woman there uh in a in a big fur coat and then she would take that fur coat off and we'd spend two or three hours in the studio doing that and i can remember those probably more than some of my my straightforward standard uh, subjects but i think the point here is that even then as i'm going out of that first degree i'm still connected to the arts and then i go through this incredibly disciplined process of seven years of doing research to get a phd and that's you know it's soil chemistry it's vegetation analysis it's it's multivariate mathematical analysis all this complex stuff and it's very specific but then i got out of that and applied that to sustainability that i'd got that pedigree that i would got that you know the academic learning and the approach to research but as I was completing that PhD, I was already tuned into sustainability issues. And I was really driven, much more driven by how do people make their lives on this planet? How do they integrate with the environment? How do they protect the environment and at the same time, benefit financially from it? And and that, that became my career. And then you come to some of my most satisfying moments uh, working in sustainability in oil companies whether it was doing consultancy or or working within a company most satisfying things was working with engineers and convincing engineers that they had to take into account the social concerns of people and that i remember this happening in a course that i delivered in argentina with these hard-nosed civil engineers and, and mechanical engineers who were wanting to make oil and gas operations happen. And I convinced them that if you ignore the people in those communities where you want to explore for oil and gas, you will not do what you want to do. And, and I found that over and over again, working with engineers that it, it, I was able to transform their perspective. And in a sense, it's, it's getting them to think like artists in a way, isn't it? But in this case, it's actually getting to think, to, to have a, a social consciousness or, or thinking, which is outside of their traditional discipline. And most of them were guys, most of them were men, right? And that is just another issue, you know, uh, perhaps having more female engineers would help there, right? But But engineers predominantly are trained to be engineers. They're trained about the mathematics. They're trained about the physics. They do not get enough about the social issues. And yet that is the thing that stops them doing what they want to do. It's not the formulas. It's not the mathematical knowledge. It's people saying, no, we're not happy about this.
0: I I am always drawn to this basic philosophical schism, really, between the rationalists and, well, romantists, really, at the end of the 19th century. But uh, just pertaining to the arts it's become this binary characterization that artists are um, emotive and empathetic, intuitive, and kind of uh, really socialists by nature, which is fundamentally not true in practice, but that's the characterization. And then engineers in particular, uh, or businessmen uh, or women, are uh, very rationalistic, mechanical, industrialist, and have no empathy. But what you're describing is this dialectical thing where I think the functional reality for human beings is we have both and finding sort of a balance between the two is difficult. And photographers out of artists, I, I find, tend to lean the rationalist mechanical side too often because we have a, a medium that is mechanical, um, whether we want to admit it or not. I mean, there are scientific and fundamental mechanical principles on how to make an exposure and how lenses work and uh, what the camera sees, et cetera. So it is fascinating to hear from you, uh, both that you had, uh, you know, an artistic intuition to start, that you uh, delved into a rationalist pursuit of science, um, but that you found a career sort of uh, not skirting, maybe... um, uh, merging the two, uh, if anything. I, I'm oversimplifying your life's work, I think. But uh, uh, And now that we're kind of coming to where we are today, I know you wanted to talk about your latest sort of uh, project, the, the social project, really, about uh, publishing books. You know, all of this in my mind was to get an idea of why books are so important to you and building these narratives. And you know, I think it's outside, obviously, just photography. I mean, you've been kind of doing this for your career, uh, talking to people that are single-minded and trying to give them a variety of uh, information. So I don't know, it's it's fascinating. It's very it's very social. It's very uh, nice to uh, want to try to make people softer.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, um, I'm not sure I'd call him a role model. In, in, in fact, that would not be the, the point. But um, you think about leonardo da vinci that's a really good example of someone who had such a massive creative mind his his artistic abilities the mona lisa and so on were were phenomenal and yet he was an engineer he had two sides of his brain that were working so well together and not everybody has got that very few people have got that ability and I'm, I'm, I'm not for a moment trying to say I'm someone like that. But what I would say, and I'm proud of, is that I do operate as an artist and a scientist. And I always have. I've always had that interest, that crossover interest between the two. And it still happens because you know I teach at Mount Royal University. And, and I teach this course. Well, I teach sustainability courses there. But I also teach a course called Writing About Images. And amongst other things. Uh, one of the things I work with my students there is to explore how imagery is used to represent sustainability themes and how imagery is used to influence change in politicians or people, uh, make them think about a situation, make them perhaps make a donation or make a political decision. But of course, imagery is terribly important, really, really important in that. And, And yet, Young people are not trained in that. People at schools in Canada and anywhere else, they have very little training in terms of visual interpretation. And yet you've alluded to this. You talk about the world of Instagram and Twitter and and social media and, and Netflix and everything else. We are exposed to so much visual imagery now. We are overwhelmed by it. And I believe, and it's a bit of a mission, I believe it's really important for us to step back and say, well, how is that imagery being used to influence me or other people? And we're taught mathematics, we're taught to write in our, our, our home language and so on, but we're not taught at schools how to interpret visual information. We're taught to interpret numbers and words, but not images. And in the world that we live now, that is really important. And so I actually do a big piece there in that course about artivism, for example, and how is art, mainly in the case of photography, how is photography used to, to influence change in society? So again, it's that crossover between the arts and the sciences that really fascinates me individually.
0: Yeah, I love that idea. And it's telling that there's a career now called social
1: media influencers. <laughs> It's, uh, you, can be, you can be paid to do it, can't you? Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> you, can I mean, be it's, a so, you can be a paid social influencer on, on Instagram. I, um, know, I, yeah, I suppose that's what... I'm not uh, one of those. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: advertising men, uh, or whatever you would call it, The advertising uh, career used to be. Um, so I in all of this to round out, uh, I mean, it sounds like for you, the mission on a personal level then is in order for us to understand... Uh, I don't know about how, but get an experience of interpreting visual information, you've pushed yourself into uh, photo books or books in general. So um, this will sound a little bit like a plug, but, you know, just to finish off the conversation, you know, what is it about photo books that has inspired you to try to share this process with other people? Um, It's one thing I think uh, for a photographer to... To, I mean, that's hard enough, to work to publish their own story and their own experience of the world. But recently, you've decided that you want also to support other, right now, I think local photographers to get their stories so out from your life experience, it seems fairly obvious where this comes from, but perhaps you can kind of give me an overview of... Uh, what your latest project is and what you hope to kind of, uh, I don't know, achieve or to provide <laughs> or to, to, uh, to uh,
1: like, what is it about? You know, well, I've, I've been, I've actually been publishing for a long time. I got a textbook published back in 1990 um, by a, a big publishing house, um, but then all the other books since then, I think it's 10 now, um, I've self-published uh, under my own name. And I wanted to go to the next step from that for a couple of reasons, that, that I want to continue making photo books. But I also wanted to open it up so that I could collaborate with other people and and to increase the opportunity, uh, let's say, increase the opportunity of people who, who currently have not been published or have struggled to get recognised in, in their work that have a common desire to use visual imagery to promote understanding and awareness and and perhaps influence change in these big audacious issues that we have to face in society now. And and that is around sustainability. The, The planet will take care of itself, but the people on the planet may suffer as a consequence of mismanaging that planet. And that is what is going on in climate change. That's what's happening in terms of losses of soils and losses of of forest. It's what's happening in terms of acidification of oceans. It's what's happening in terms of uh, young kids not surviving to adulthood because they do not have access to good, clean, wholesome water and food. These are fundamentals that we are all influenced by. And academic papers do it, political speeches do it, books also have to do that. And, and once you've got, you know, magazines like National Geographic are, are putting forward on this agenda, and there's plenty of literature out there. I do believe that there is a space there for carefully curated sets of small, accessible and which means affordable books that are, are putting forward visual messages to do with these sustainability themes. So because that's what I've done all my career you know, whether it's academia or working in business and now working as a photographer. Sustainability is my tagline. It really is what I do. It's what I think about consistently through every day. But I want to go beyond just me doing this to find uh, a collection of, of like-minded souls who want to apply their, their artistic approach to the world to these big, important issues. So that's really why I've set up Betula Books as an independent publisher. That, that to begin with, it's going to be my books. But I, I want to go and bring in other photographers and indeed other artists. I'm really interested in that as well, to put forward visual stories about these themes. And it's interesting because you 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 were talking about you know, Instagram and, and the, the, the frustrations there. I, I'm ambivalent about instagram and twitter as well and this issue again of being bombarded by so many images and you know you you do it you know scrolling through these images nothing sticks or very little sticks but i actually want to respond to your previous challenge i think there is a place for photo books there but it's got to be affordable and accessible photo books i think there are real important challenges there about how you're actually going to share your work if that book is costing $100, even $50. Now, the the realities of the marketplace are that printing is expensive. Distribution and shipping is really expensive. And so books cost a lot of money. But books that are like magazines or zines are less expensive. The unit cost goes down. But you can do them in a way that still keeps the quality up. And that's the niche that I want to operate in. So it's cost-effective but high-quality um, photography and other arts that are really exploring these sustainability themes.
0: Yeah, I uh, I think it would be interesting. It would be inspiring if we can see a medium or a mode of uh, publishing work, again, exactly like you said, that's accessible to the people that are most motivated by it. You know, if, if you have a hundred dollar hardcover photography book, that's a very niche audience, and likely an audience that I won't say is part of the problem, but uh, while they may have financial means, are not going to be the ones that are going to be marching. Um, and as we've learned, uh, you know, the power of zines. Uh, coming from the UK, you know, zine culture is uh, probably a little bit more influential than it has been in Canada, anyways. But just getting social, uh, so, social liberal messages out in something that might even be a free pamphlet versus a subscription, even to National Geographic. I mean, I grew up with National Geographic magazines in the house, but, you know, my parents paid for that. That's not a particularly accessible medium anymore. But, yeah, if we could get photo works, uh, artworks, narratives out in a way that, you know, my son or my friend who's truly a struggling artist could actually pick up you know, participate in, this sounds like a worthy cause. I'm just cynical in everything I think about, whether that's plausible or not. <laughs> but I guess you're going to find out, actually, for us, because uh, I've published a magazine uh, here in Calgary, and while uh, the printer did a great job making it very affordable for me, it's uh, it's very difficult to keep viable. You know, there's a lot of effort, as you know, to just going to publish one uh, to produce one book um, of your time. So, uh, never mind the, the functional printing and shipping in Canada. I don't know if it's different in the States or in Europe, but Christ, it costs 15 bucks to send a letter almost these days. So I don't know what the nuances you'll face there, but you know, I hope it works out. (laughs) Thanks, David. (laughs) Um, All right. Let's, let's wrap up. I mean, first and foremost, Ashley, I I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Yeah.
1: It's great to learn something about you it's it's been uh really nice to have a chat with david yeah even if we are on zoom and um but uh you know i i really do long for the day when uh you know you and i have been connected through the exposure studio uh, for it's coming up almost a year now isn't it it's not that yeah, far off pr- pretty much off. and uh, this is the only the only connections that we've had you know i i was putting that exhibition together with angela bame and all that time it was all done through zoom and we were doing interviews and i was making films based on the zoom uh, recordings and so on and it wasn't until like the day that we were actually putting the, the photographs up on the walls at sea space that we actually met in person and uh, and it was amazing it was like you know i'd grown to understand a little bit and, and appreciate the work of this other person and finally after months and months we we, we meet up so I think we're all dealing with this in our own respective way, but I I cannot deny I'm I'm really yearning for that real contact and have proper conversations with people in their future.
0: Again, everything's political, but without assessing Alberta and Canada's uh, process of dealing with this pandemic, uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen very quickly. But I, too, I mean, I've been talking to some of the other photographers as well, and having met so many creative minds over Zoom, it's... uh, such a new generation thing so uh yeah whether it's tea or coffee yeah it'll be great to sit down with everybody one day and physically share work and ideas and uh i think there's so much bubbling creative impetus that once we're allowed outside of our caves uh, who knows maybe it'll be a, a new epoch in uh in uh, creative uh, endeavors in calgary <laughs> once an artist always an artist We had a fascinating memory of connecting with art, but pursuing science. But that intuition to tell stories remained. I identify with that. Whatever my career pursuits and wherever my decisions led me, here I sit, fanning a flame of creating things that has persisted with me since I can remember. I too tried to apply to an art school. I also obsessed over drawing and reading and telling stories. I even created a comic book for a school paper. I wrote music in a way but only now I'm finding that I must do these things not in passing, but with passion. We seem to be guided to a life defined by goals, comparisons, projections. If there's one thing a photographer should be innately aware of is that the appearance of a thing is not the thing in itself. Showing the world that you are happy is not the same as just being happy. There's a thread in all human beings to create things. It's part of our nature. What form that takes, Be it sculpture, food, business, dance, sports, taking pictures. I'm beginning to suspect that creativity itself may simply be the only purpose of life in principle. We seem to be created by some miracle or something, science, faith, who cares? And we have the ability to create. It's a fascinating circle. I'm always caught in a trap of needing to prove that I'm creative. Maybe it's time I just go out and create something. I think this works for you in particular, but if you could tell the world one thing, uh, what would it be?
1: I think it's going to be that we, we all need to work together to make this world a more sustainable place.
0: This episode has been brought to you by Shift by Alberta Innovates. Our province is a hotbed of innovation. Now in season two, Shift's hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen put the spotlight on Albertan innovators working to improve the world one ripple at a time. Here's a taste of the shift podcast by Alberta innovates.
1: Make shift by Alberta innovates your next podcast binge join us as we take a deep dive with the people that are driving Alberta's 21st century economy. These global movers and shakers are working to solve today's challenges, create new opportunities, and build a healthy, sustainable, and prosperous future for Albertans today and for generations to come. Just when you think you know all about Alberta. We're here to shift your perspective.
0: I don't know if I could stress this enough. We have a top three institution in arguably the most important technology in the entire world right now.
1: We will prove a lot of people wrong
0: by coming out of this even stronger. And the way we will do it is by finding ways to help businesses be cash flow positive and by willing to, you know, find the ways that
1: we can help. We're just starting to scratch the surface. And I mean, Calgary just this uh, last month and now the fact that they broke their record again for venture capital investment and some of this is in fintech some of this is in a whole bunch of different areas where we originally didn't even you know have these types of core industries in alberta we have diversification in our dna we just have forgotten about it
0: sincerely we are blessed in alberta to have all the infrastructure that we do have
1: tune in to shift by visiting shift.albertainnovates.ca or your favorite podcast app